voicing general disapproval today. Um, you're like the podcaster that is begrudgingly here. You're, <laughs> you're not like Jason and I, who are like, we need to be on front of the camera. No, you're not no. the podcaster that we want, but you're the podcaster we need. That's right. <laughs> but not the one you deserve. <laughs> Welcome to VCR, a Vintage Cinema Rewind. We're bringing old movies to new viewers. I'm Blake. (laughs) I don't know why I thought you were going to say something, but... Okay. I was really... I just had high expectations for you this episode, and you've already disappointed me. Okay, sorry. I'm Mike, and I'm here. Jesus. (laughs) We're off to a great start. And uh, we're here for our holiday special. We're here for a Die Hard. We're we're doing a Die Hard. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Die Hard, Die Hard, Die Hard. Ricky Ticky Die Hard. Yeah, that's all of that is a Rick and Morty reference if you don't know what we're talking about. Yeah, Uh, so... From the most recent season, which was a really great episode. I feel like I'm going to be talking about that later in the episode. Cool, looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah, this is our holiday special, so Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, everybody out there, all the listeners. And we've got, debatably, a holiday movie today, which we're probably going to debate uh, later. The 1988 action epic, Die Hard. Epic is a good word for it, actually. Like, I... I re- I watched this movie on like I watched it when I was a teenager, obviously, but I watched mm-hmm. it for the first time in like ten or fifteen years on Wednesday, and I was surprised at the scope of the movie. I am excited to talk about my relationship to the movie a little bit later, then, because you and I, I think, have different relationships to this, which is interesting. I didn't know that this was your first watch in a while. Yeah, it's been. Yeah, I mean. I think I went through this phase when I was a teenager where my parents showed me and my sister a bunch of classic 80s movies, like mm-hmm. the Rocky movies, the Rambo movies, um, you know. Actually, maybe we just went through like a Sylvester Stallone phase. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember watching all the diehards with my parents on, Jesus Christ, it might have been like VHS mm-hmm. on a VCR, wink, wink. Cool. But, but yeah, I watched them probably a couple times as a teenager and then... 12 years went by, and here we are. Nice. This is an annual watch for me, so I, I have a very deep connection with this movie. Okay. Um, but we'll talk about that later in our personal reviews. Let's get started with the plot, and I'll let you break it down. Okay. Well, for those precious few of you who have never seen this movie, <laughs> uh, first of all, just turn us off and go watch it. Like, what are you doing with your life? Um. So, Bruce freaking Willis stars as... Uh, New York cop John McClane, who is on his way to L.A. to visit his... Somewhat uh, estranged wife. Somewhat estranged wife is a good way of putting it. They attend her boss's uh, Christmas party at Nakatomi Plaza, or Nakatomi Tower, which is then overtaken by terrorists, in air quotes, led (laughs) by the always fantastic Alan Rickman. And John escapes and begins a guerrilla warfare campaign against the, once again, quote unquote, terrorists. So, and I mean, yeah, that's basically it. It's a very simple setup, but it sprawls out in ways you might not have been expecting. Again, this for the few of you who haven't seen it. Yeah, for sure. This is a 
absolute classic of action films that had a very massive impact on action films in the 90s and still continues to have an impact on action films today, I would say. And we'll go into much more detail into when we get into the spoiler section on how impactful this movie really is. It's kind of um it's kind of interesting the space this movie holds because like it's a classic, right? Mm-hmm. So it's hard to imagine like where the action genre or where movies in general were before this movie came out. And I guess just what a kind of gamble this movie was when yeah. it was made. Like so yeah, just looking at the historical context, I didn't realize that at the time this movie came out, the idea of Bruce Willis as an action star was kind of questionable, preposterous. It kind of reminds me of how um you saw Nobody, right? Yeah. Yeah, like the idea of Bob Odenkirk as an action star was kind of funny. And yeah, then, then nobody came out. We're like, okay, like he can pull it off. Let's move into characters and people you may know. Let's let's plow through this intro bit because we're going to assume that most of the viewers have seen this yeah. classic at this point. But this really is like hopefully the final push that if you've never seen this film, hopefully we finally get you there mm-hmm. um, because it is absolutely worth your time. The holiday classic. So characters and people you may know. The first person that we would need to talk about, the central character, our starring, our leading man. Our Adonis. Yes. John McClane, the New York cop that you mentioned. He is kind of portrayed as an everyman. He's not the typical action movie up until this point in cinema where he's basically indestructible. Like, we see John McClayton be very vulnerable throughout the movie. There's even a little bit of self-loathing towards himself either. There's not as much assuredness as some of the action heroes of the prior generation, I would say. You know what I was thinking um, watching this movie on Wednesday? Again, putting this movie in its historical context... Like, the big action stars pre-Bruce Willis were Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. Like, big, muscle-bound, He-Men, Rambo. Rambo 3 came out earlier that year, I think. And, you know, Rambo even has that, like, massive... Like, yeah, the that hair. massive perm, right? Yeah. And I was... And then, you know, we've got... And then looking at it nowadays, like, we've got, like, Chris Hemsworth and, like, Chris, Chris Evans. Pratt. Yeah, all the these... Chris's. The Chris... The various Chris's. Yeah. <laughs> and how they're all, like... I mean, I, I shouldn't say this because I don't want to get sued, but, like, probably, you know, on some kind of steroids. Like, 10% body fat, like, rippling abs, that sort of thing. Well, I think it was... It wasn't one of them. It was Rob McGurney, I think, uh, from Always Sunny in Philadelphia that put a post that was like, you know, like, all you need to get, like, Hollywood jacked is basically, like, unlimited money (laughs) uh, and unlimited time, you know, take some roids, take, like... The the trainer from the Magic Mike movies. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Like, all of that. And and there's some truth to that, right? Like, to get in that kind of shape, like, you do... in, In the time that people have to get in that shape for Hollywood films you do have to be on maybe a little bit of something and also have ex-trainers and ex-chefs around you at all times kind of getting you in that shape it's it's unattainable for the person who works the nine to five um, yeah and and really shouldn't be the standard and that's where Bruce Willis comes in who's who's obviously in great shape in this film I was thinking, watching this movie, like, he just kind of looks like a guy. Yeah. Like a normal guy. Like, he's like he's barrel-chested, and, yeah. like, he looks like he can kick your ass, but, like, 
Like, he just looks like a guy. Like, he's even got, like, a receding hairline. Like, yeah. He just, like... Yeah, and that's a great thing that I was going to mention is yeah. this is a... Because this is so early in Bruce Willis's career, he actually has hair in this yeah, movie. Yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> if you want to see Bruce Willis with hair, uh, look no further. But yeah, yeah he, he just he just looks like a dude who has a job and a family who like probably goes to the gym, but like also drinks beer. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. like almost a dad bod. Yeah, kind of. But anyway, Bruce Willis, a favorite on this podcast. We've already done an episode centered around him when we did The Fifth Element, which is pretty good sci-fi film. He's also known for The Sixth Sense, Pulp Fiction, Twelve Monkeys, and Looper, all of which I've seen. I'm a massive fan of Bruce Willis, so I've seen most of his filmography pre-2010, like 2012. For obvious reasons, there's been a lot of direct-to-DVD movies since then and kind of uh, tragic in yeah, hindsight yeah, yeah tragic in hindsight because of his diagnosis this year with aphasia or bringing up in the in the public discourse his diagnosis and retiring from movies so it's it's sad but i'm glad that we had bruce willis in films like these where you can return to them time and time again and still find new things, I guess, within the film because there were things within this watch that I maybe hadn't noticed or focused on before that I actually found really interesting yeah. and insightful. Watching this movie again just earlier this week, like it's kind of like um, we just recently did The Jerk and mm-hmm. I, I mentioned how I was watching Steve Martin like, wow, like he's fantastic, right? Yeah. I was watching Die Hard and I had the same reaction to Bruce Willis. I'm like... You're great in this movie. Like, oh, yeah. You can really act. And this is like his personal favorite role as well, John McClane. And that's mm. probably why he jumped into the role at any opportunity that he had. And there was a rumor at one point that they were going to make a six movie. But obviously, with the issues that he's had the last few years, that he was unable to kind of meet that. Uh, so yeah. hopefully Hollywood retires the John McClane character um, along with Bruce Willis. But Hollywood obviously is not known for letting things oh we'll give it a give it five years and we'll have like a ai deep fake bruce willis on screen yeah like, exactly yeah the young uh john mcclain <laughs> yeah with uh with her with a digitally uh a digitally corrected hairline too yeah, everybody probably. has to look perfect <laughs> fun fact for you before we move on from bruce willis he's actually the most german actor uh, what? in the film he was born in west germany um <laughs> which is much more german than any of the actual villains in the movie were in real life i was i gotta say um okay this you know what jumping right ahead um mm-hmm. the next big actor we have to talk about is probably what uh alan rickman yes as i hans was gruber i was watching hans gruber and kind of in my head being like is uh is alan rickman german that's not a German name. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Rickman, who plays Hans Gruber, one of the greatest villains of all time, was not, in fact, German. He was British. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. And he, and you kind of hear that in his voice. Like, oh, I guess the only time where I heard the German accent was when he was speaking German in the few instances that he did during the film. But Hans Gruber, one of the greatest villains of all time, and again... A precursor for what's to come with villains uh, for the next 20, 30 years after this movie. Absolutely. The intelligent villain. The villain that you can almost empathize with and you kind of secretly sometimes root for to, to succeed in his plan. Like, he's very intellectual and everything's planned to the tiniest detail. 
I'm always really interested in the relationship between the hero and the villain in any movie mm-hmm. and how they maybe mirror each other or contrast each other or what have you. And I think as a fan of the Batman and the Joker that, uh, that that's something that fans of that genre are maybe somewhat always paying attention to in the back kind of their heads. Kind of, yeah. I like, you know... Yeah, I almost find, like, in a lot of books or movies, like, the relationship between the hero and the villain is almost more interesting than any other relationship. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I'm also a huge fan of anime, right? So, like, yeah. the rival stock character. Right. I'm like, wow, they're so connected. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, homoerotic fantasies aside, um, <laughs> so I was visiting family this week for a Christmas party, and I ended up rewatching this movie with my mom, appropriately enough, because she's the one... Her and my dad are the ones that showed it to me originally. And mm-hmm. she even pointed out herself like that John McClane and Hans Gruber are fantastic adversaries. Yeah. Just in how they're like the polar opposites of each other. Mm-hmm. And like John is like kind of grubby, working class, just a guy. I wouldn't necessarily say he's smart, but he's clever. Yeah. He's quick-witted. Not, quick-witted, yeah. Quick on his feet. Whereas Hans Gruber is, you know... Calculated. Calculated and measured and polished and, mm. like, fantastically well-dressed for a career criminal. Yeah. Yeah, whereas um, John is a fantastic improviser, Hans almost seems like a fantastic plotter. Which isn't to say that he doesn't have his moments thinking on his feet, but... Yeah, no. Like, I couldn't imagine a better adversary for the John McClane character than Hans Gruber. Yeah, and you know what? You know what I want to say at this point? In a lot of our previous episodes with really famous actors, we kind of defer to talking about the character by the actor's name. And both Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman really are lost in the character. Like, they become the character. And when I'm watching this movie, I'm not watching Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman. I'm literally watching John McClane and Hans Gruber. And when I'm thinking about this movie, I'm not thinking about the actors. I'm thinking about the characters and the characterizations. John and and Hans, yeah. Yeah. And that's just, again, a point to how fantastic this movie and how well-acted this movie is. That's a good point. And... Beautifully or spectacularly, this was actually Alan Rickman's first cinematic role. Prior to this, he had been a stage uh, theater actor uh, for a few years at that point. He was in his 40s at the time that this movie was made, and this was his first on-screen appearance. Uh, and, And the role that really put him on the map, right? Like that voice alone yeah. is something that people stopped and paid attention to. And e- so even just the name of the character, like Hans Gruber. Yes. Like even the name just sounds like slimy and sinister. Yes. Very sinister. Yeah. I like that word for that description. And without this movie, we really wouldn't have a lot of really great roles of with Alan Rickman. And my examples are Snape, from the Harry Potter series. And funny enough, I think Alan Rickman was maybe the only person in the world, apart from J.K. Rowling, who knew where the series was going because it impacted his portrayal, and she told him the ending of the novel before anybody else knew. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. So we were just talking about this before we started recording. I've actually never read any of the Harry Potter books or Mm -hmm. seen any of the movies. (laughs) That's not true. I, I watched the first one on a date, like... Eight months ago. Nice. I don't really have as much exposure. For people our age, that's probably the role we would most know him for. Yes, the quintessential role. The quintessential role. So I didn't really get 
have that relationship with Alan Rickman, but just watching this movie again, again, same with Bruce Willis, I really have to admire the craft on display. Yeah, and the other films that you may know him from, in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, he played the Sheriff of Nottingham, which apparently is, a, again, a role where he really gets lost in the character, and, and he huh. steals the movie from what I've read online as well. That's um, the uh, Kevin Costner movie, right? Yes, it is With the Kevin the, Costner uh, Robin famous Hood. Brian Adams song. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I haven't actually seen the movie myself, but it is something that we actually talked about doing on the podcast earlier this year for our fantasy film. And I think it's something that we'll return to in the next couple of years. It's interesting. I feel like Alan Rickman was almost born to play like sinister, condescending authority figures. Yeah, like, and he it really... really wasn't what he was interested in playing. Oh. Um, and yeah, he almost didn't take the role for that reason. But we'll talk about that later. Okay. So the other film that you might know him from is the film Galaxy Quest, which is a sci-fi comedy from the 90s. Oh, yeah. One that I personally very much love. But unfortunately, we haven't had Alan Rickman in any of our films because he passed away in 2016 of cancer. Yeah, Um, very sad. Unfortunately, we do not have him with us anymore. The next character that I want to talk about is Holly Gennaro, who is actually John McClane's estranged wife in the film, who took the job at the Nakatomi Plaza building, uh, moved away from John with the kids, and, and that's kind of why they're they're in this estranged relationship, because there's some friction between why she left and, and whether John approved of her leaving to take a job. Where- so... Not to cut you off, but the one thing I was trying to wrap my head around this morning as I was driving over here is we see the kids briefly at the start of the movie and then for a brief second at one point on TV. So, like, she moved for the job and she took the kids with her, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, in a sense, like, she didn't really leave. He just didn't follow his own family. Yeah. That's yeah. that's exactly it. <laughs> okay. Um, and he kind of explains that early on in the film. He says, you know, like, I am a New York cop, and I had some some jobs, some people that I want to put behind bars, and it takes a few months for that stuff to kind of work their way through the yeah, system, and I just yeah. wanted to be around for that. And he kind of, like, he kind of half-ass excuses it and then why Ar- he didn't leave. Then Argyle, his driver, kind of calls him out for saying, oh, you just figured it she wouldn't it wouldn't work out for her out here so she'd come crawling back and you wouldn't even have to unpack exactly yeah and it's it's kind of funny because it it really doesn't paint a great picture of who john mcclain is in those opening 20 minutes of the film yeah he's definitely a flawed person yeah and flawed in a very mundane way too Mm -hmm. right like it's not so much like preposterous it's not shakespearean he's just kind of an insensitive jerk yeah and like we're we're all insensitive jerks at the end of the, <laughs> at the end of the day, or at least we've all known plenty of insensitive jerks. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost um, there's nothing there's nothing. I almost kind of admire the movie for having the courage to present kind of a domestic squabble so unglamorously, mm-hmm. and it's not like fetishized either. It's just oh, like you're just kind of a bad husband right now. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> what do we do? 
So getting back to Holly Gennaro, right. though, played by Bonnie Bedelia, another fantastic portrayal of a, the character. I really can't complain about any portrayals, to be honest, in the film. But Bonnie Bedelia, you might know, actually, from the TV show Parenthood, a very recent TV show that I believe is wrapped up at this point. She played Camille Braverman in all 103 Braverman. episodes of the show. 103 uh, episodes? Yeah. I don't... I don't remember hearing about that. Yeah. Okay. So she's still very much relevant in Hollywood. The other character with an actor that I want to quickly mention, uh, Thornburg, the slimy reporter. Uh, who <laughs> the best appears... character in the movie. <laughs> Actually, no, the most sinister character in the movie. Yeah, he appears kind of later in the film once the terrorist acts kind of become known to outside the outside world outside of the Nakatomi Plaza. He's played by William Atherton, which you might actually know from Ghostbusters. That's right, where he plays exactly the same character. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Only this time he works for the EPA. Yeah. I uh, like to I'm going to pretend that those movies take place in the same universe and it's just <laughs> the same guy. It's like this guy where everywhere he it's almost like Randall Flag but in a much more mundane way. He just goes from place to place making things worse for everyone. You know, I never put it to like two and two together that they were the same person. Um, basically yeah, yeah. And, like, but uh, they were just like the actual the same actor too <laughs> yeah that's um, a good point but yeah you also might know him from the last samurai a tom cruise movie uh he played winchester rep i haven't actually seen that movie so at the that's end of it all i know him so the end of it 15 years ago the last couple of characters and i'm gonna bring him up later and that's why i want to bring him up now mm-hmm. is argyle john mcclain's hired limo driver who is Sent from the Nakatomi Plaza, like the owners of the company decide because Holly's such an important person in the business to send her spouse, uh, Limo, to go pick him up from the airplane. And then because John and Argyle have a, a good relationship as they drive there, Argyle says, you know, like, I'll, I'll wait for you here yeah, on, to yeah. see how things go with your wife. And and so he sticks around and then has a, maybe a, a more important role later on in the film as well. The Kinda. other character that I wanted to mention was Sergeant Al... Um, Al Powell? Yes, Sergeant yeah. Al Powell. Al Powell. Yeah. Say that for a second. There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of long L's in that name. Yeah, that's true. But I digress. Um, he plays a one of the first responders, one of the first police officers on the scene and is the person to discover what's happening there and and alerts the rest of the police force to have them come and uh, start the the whole shebang with with the terrorist hostage situation basically. Yeah, he's almost the most likable character in the whole movie. He really is. Yeah. I, I really enjoy his portrayal, and I wasn't going to bring him up, but maybe I will really quickly, the actor who plays him. It was Reginald Vell Johnson. Oh, that's a name. Yeah, uh, who reprises his role in another Die Hard film, because spoilers, there's more Die Hard films to watch. We should talk about that later. Cause we will. I... After rewatching the first movie, I have significantly less respect for the other movies. (laughs) (laughs) Until you watch them again, you'll learn to love them. Okay, we'll see. Let's get to directed and then writer, and then we'll move into who is this movie for. So the director is John McTiernan, who also directed Predator, great action 
sci-fi film starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and The Hunt for Red October starring what? Sean Connery. Wow. Um, which is actually what he followed up this film with. What a filmography. Yeah, but he's not a great dude. He oh. spent time in jail for wiretapping a producer on one of his films and then lying about it to the FBI. And there's also some stuff online about him and his wife and wiretapping stuff in their divorce. Wait, what the? So, yeah, he went to jail. Wire... Yeah. W- w- wiretapping? Yeah. Who is uh, he, Nixon? Like... Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So he, he saw the Watergate scandal and he was like, I could get away with this. <laughs> <laughs> so, what yeah, not a great dude. We probably don't need to talk about him any more than that. Um, You're just going to leave me with that? Okay. Yeah. I'll Google it later. <laughs> yep. <laughs> You know, it's 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 a sad reflection of our times that when you as soon as you said not a great dude, I immediately thought he was guilty of something else. No, and just, then you said wiretapping. Like what? Yeah, and that's maybe why he's. I mean, it's why he's not prevalent in Hollywood anymore, but also why he's not like you know. Let's bring up him for being a a wife abuser or cheater or or sex person. He's just a dirty dirty wiretapper <laughs> yeah but anyway let's move on okay jeb stewart the writer of the film or the screenwriter of the film wrote the fugitive after starring harrison ford great movie oh shit um and recently actually did vikings valhalla on netflix it's a tv series um i think it's a spinoff of vikings i haven't seen either of them yet I haven't but it's either. on my watch list i the fugitive is one of those movies my parents showed me and my sister a lot. I probably watched that movie on VHS like five times. Wow, I've only seen it like once or twice probably. I remember yeah. really enjoying it, but it's I just not something I've returned to. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. Yeah. So I probably don't remember anything from it. We'll but... do it on the podcast at some point. Okay. It's on the list. I also wanted to mention Jeb Stewart as well, because in the writing process of writing the character of John McClane, he described the character that he wanted to write as a flawed hero who learns a lesson in the worst possible situation and becomes a better, but not a different person, which I thought was a really interesting characterization. And I think he was successful in in writing the character of John McClane in the way that he wanted to tell that story. Better, but not different isn't interesting way of putting it when i read that i was like i need to bring that up because it's so it's in like i understand what he means though it's you know this is such a weird comparison but i'm just gonna shoot from the hip yeah we were talking about rick and morty in the new season and how this new season of rick and morty has in my opinion anyway been taking more pains to paint rick as a better person Mm -hmm. and i was talking to my roommate about it and i'm like it's not so much like he's a good person now he's just less shitty yeah. You know what I mean? So it's, but I, I like that. Who is this movie for? Everyone. Yes. It is widespread appeal. If you've never seen Die Hard, you need to watch it. Actually, fun fact, Jason recently showed this to our friend Kelvin, who we created this podcast for. He doesn't watch old movies. And right. he really liked it because obviously it's Die Hard. It's freaking it's, Die Hard. It's a classic. It's a classic action movie. There's something for you in this movie. There's something for everyone in this movie, whether it's the portrayal of Hans Gruber, whether it's the everyman style of John McClane, whether it's the the comedic aspects of the movie, whether it's just the pure action element of it. There's, You you know what blew me away about this movie on rewatch? Mm -hmm. Like, I had forgotten how charming this movie was. Yes. Like, down to, like, the subtle things, too. Like, how... There's that little, like, access room where there's, like, a pinup girl mm-hmm. on the wall. 
and John like runs by and like he pauses and like almost dislocates his neck looking over <laughs> his shoulder at it. And then later in the movie, he's being chased by bad guys. He runs through the same room, looks at the calendar, nods at it. It goes, ladies. Yep. <laughs> Just keeps going. Like This movie has a lot of depth to it. Um, yeah, also and, that. And that wasn't the actual intention of the film from the get-go. And, and it's actually a product of of the need of the set basically to have added all of this depth and i think that's also what adds to the charm of the film and i don't want to spoil my thought process on that or do a deeper dive on that without getting into spoilers so i'm gonna leave it at that and then once we get into spoilers i'm gonna kind of expand on that thought okay yeah so obviously i think we don't even need to say any more about who this movie is for how do the effects hold up for you in this movie this is a 1998 film were pre-CGI. What did you think of all the effects? Honestly, I have no complaints. Like it, I I watched it on a bigger TV and higher definite. I didn't watch it on my phone or my laptop as I've done for a lot of these movies. Mm -hmm. But no, I thought it looked great. Like, so did I. I like no notes. Like oh, holds great. up. Yeah, holds up to a modern watch. It's uh, one of those kind of final movies of an era of of doing all the stunts live with real stunt people. We're going to throw Bruce Willis off this building. <laughs> legit yeah. real elements of danger involved in the making of this film. And that's something that you miss in in modern movies. Like there's there's no underscored real danger and and for better or worse that uh for better or worse yeah, like, yeah. I, I want all my actors to be at immense peril at all times <laughs> but you know even the scene where john sets off the c4 and part of the building blows up mm -hmm. i did have a moment where I'm like holy crap like yeah that was, that was a big wild. explosion yeah i agree <laughs> yeah that's property damage but <laughs> no this movie holds up shockingly well yeah like even the like the dialogue is on point like mm -hmm. everything's on point for yeah, the most part i agree except for maybe the hairstyles <laughs> like holly's big 80s perm is kind of funny <laughs> yeah yeah i will say that the movie it holds up to a modern watch because in part the pacing is so crisp like yeah this movie is always moving and it's moving the plot along really well and there's always something to be worried about next there's always something coming around the corner that's yeah. being thrown at john yeah definitely uh, when to watch, obviously this is a blockbuster movie. It's a ton of fun to watch. This is not one of those sad, depressing movies that we've maybe been doing a little sure, over. Sure, done a few of those. Yeah, I've yeah. done a few of those in the last few months. But this is a great movie. It's laugh out loud funny at times. It's edge of your seat, action packed at some times. It's mm. tense. It's it's everything. It's, it's just a really great cinematic watch. So watch it as a big movie night. Watch it with a friend. Watch it with family. Um, it's really a movie that's meant to be experienced with other people. I agree. And I would really love to see this in a theater with other people oh, as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So if you have any local theaters that show old movies, maybe keep an eye out for this one being presented uh, in theaters. Because I'd, I'd like to have that experience sometime. Yeah, definitely. And this is where I ask you the question, do you think this is a Christmas movie? Because that also brings up, should you be watching this around the holidays? You know what? I'm going to be a real see you next Tuesday and deflect the question. Mm -hmm. I don't really think it matters. I read somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. Yeah. That's well, an opinion. <laughs> I just, I read somewhere that I guess Bruce Willis does not consider it a Christmas movie mm -hmm. and the director does consider it mm -hmm. a Christmas movie. I'm just kind of like 
throwing up my arms in the sense I'm like, I don't like it's it's a great movie. Like it yeah. doesn't like I don't care whether it is or the other. It's a great movie. I would say that so the film obviously takes place over the holidays. It's On taking Christmas place. Eve. Yeah, yeah, it's during a Christ, a work Christmas party is kind of the the plot point to get everybody together at the building to celebrate and and kind of get that gets that plot moving forward. So I actually did a count throughout the film of how many references, direct references to Christmas and the holidays there were. And there was at least 20 direct references and times in the movie where they brought up Christmas. It's been voted one of the best Christmas movies of all time several times, including most recently in the 2015 British film magazine Empire. Okay, well, it's Empire said it. Yeah, so so here's where I land on this is I think you bring up a good point like does it matter? But I think it does. Okay. Because I think that I this is a movie that I come back to in December of every single year almost because the excuse that it is around the Christmas times, it's around the holidays just makes it a good excuse to rewatch. And it's a film that is that's in a, my opinion, infinitely rewatchable. So it, it provides me an opportunity every year to have the excuse to throw on Die Hard. Mm, that's and, a good point. Yeah. And for that reason, I think it's a Christmas movie. I think also the fact that we just talked about how you should be watching it with other people. There's the Christmas kind of bringing people together kind of vibe. And, and that's present within this movie itself as well. So I think for all of those reasons, I've, I've classified as a Christmas movie in my opinion. You know, I'm immediately going to backtrack on what I just said. Um, <laughs> I didn't really listen to or read any other reviews of the movie before coming here, but mm-hmm. I did watch, there's a YouTube channel called Cinema Therapy. Like they talk about mental health issues or interpersonal issues as portrayed in movies and TV shows. And I did watch their episode on Die Hard, and one of the hosts said that he made a good point that every great, all great Christmas movies are about family reconciliation, mm-hmm. in which case this movie is a Christmas movie. Yeah, and it definitely qualifies yeah. under that. And we've already talked about the plot and and the estranged relationship between John and Holly. Mm-hmm. Where to watch? Right now, Die Hard is streaming on Disney+, Plus, which is where I watched it. Where I watched um, it, too. I didn't rent this one on YouTube like I have for all of our other movies. Yep, so you can watch it for free if you have that streaming service. I also have the box set of all the Die Hard movies because I am a Die Hard, Die Hard fan. Um, uh-huh. I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> Just for those of you listening, Blake looked really proud of himself. <laughs> it just came to me. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and yeah, I can't recommend this movie enough. You already recommended it at the beginning. And this is my turn to pitch this movie as something that you need to see. If we ever get to the point where we make our hundred movies that you need to see before you die list, this would absolutely be on there and probably absolutely. be one of the top action movies on that list. I would also say like... Even if you're not necessarily a fan of action movies, you would still probably really enjoy this movie. Because, mm-hmm. like, this is definitely an action movie, but it's, you know, there's, uh, like you mentioned, there's a lot of depth and nuance to this movie that maybe your average action movie doesn't necessarily have. Like, hmm. some of my favorite parts of the movie are actually in the first act before the terrorists arrive. Like, I very much agree. Yeah, like, they do a... The movie does a really good job 
grounding you in John McClane's struggle. Like, and his world, and, and the, the people within this world. Yeah. Like, actually, like, the first shot of the movie is the plane landing on the tarmac, and then we cut to... A close-up shot of John McCain's hand. John McCain? (laughs) (laughs) Let me try that again. We cut to a close-up shot of John McCain's hand making a fist around the armrest, and you see his uh, wedding band in full view. Mm-hmm. And that even just that shot alone really tells you a lot about what's going on. Yeah, that's a great point. Like it, yeah. it sets up that he's married. It sets up that he's nervous. He's not infallible. He he has fears that he's afraid of flying. Yeah, um, and he's he's just he's also just as a New York cop, he's a fish out of water. Yeah, that's he's a great point as a, well. He's in a world he doesn't really understand. And we've talked about that before on that podcast. How that often creates really good storytelling really compelling storytelling Mm -hmm. um like for example in jaws with roy scheider's character and how he's a uh as well i believe he was a new york cop as well and he's again fish out of water in this resort town this holiday town i'd forgotten um, vacation town yeah yeah and 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 he's literally on the water later yeah clint and and that yeah we use the fish out of water a lot during that episode (laughs) but anyway i think that's it for our spoiler free talk i can't recommend this movie enough if you've never seen it if you have already seen it and haven't seen it for a while check it out again because it's awesome it is awesome and it actually it also um you know maybe not to go there but it ages very it it's aged pretty well too like you look at some content from like 20 or 30 years ago and occasionally something extremely offensive will come up (laughs) but but and there's maybe for the most part like you said earlier it's almost wholesome yeah like there's a couple moments okay like there's one moment where I think Ellis, you know, the cocaine addict, yeah. says some, like, he, a racial slur dribbles out his mouth. And right. And nobody blinks. So you're just like, oh, okay. But other than that, it's a pretty, it holds up pretty well. Ah, I would you know agree. I mean? And it holds up very well to rewatches. Actually, there might be one aspect of this movie that maybe wouldn't gel with modern audiences, but we can talk about that later. Okay, cool. That sounds good to me. So, cool. yeah, we're cutting it off right now. Go check this out and come and join us later for this spoiler full discussion and all of the backstory behind this movie. Spoilerific. Okay, so let's start with our in front of the camera discussion and work our way back to behind the scenes. Sure. I want to talk about first the first act, like we've kind of alluded to, yeah. is, is my favorite part of the movie. I really love when John McClane is sneaking around and and nobody knows that he's there. Like none of the bad guys know. Yeah. And, and it, it's it's him kind of you know like processing everything and and doing his like detective work and it's really cool to see that because there isn't really a lot of other films that kind of frame the action hero in that sense. Right? Yeah, like to to give this a little more historical perspective, maybe like again, the big action stars before this were Stallone and Schwarzenegger, who mm-hmm. you know were basically muscle bound titans who were. I mean, this maybe isn't totally fair, but they seemed almost indestructible. Yeah, right? like run into the fire, like yeah, kind of indestructible. Like, um, like you know, in command in Commando, Arnold Schwarzenegger is like fighting off 50 people and none of them can hit him like yeah stuff like that right and whereas in this one like i 
I think that you can really connect quickly with John, especially in those scenes where he's, like, just doing his detective work. Like, I really feel like it could be me there, and, like, I'm just trying to, like, stay out of the the viewpoint of the bad guys and trying to figure out how am I gonna how am I gonna save everybody like what do I do yeah. how do I how do I alert the the authorities and <laughs> and get people here and 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 get help basically there's a there's a great line uh when he gets on the he like he's able to like access a radio channel and there's a uh, the operator's like sir this line is for emergencies only he's like yeah no shit what do you think i'm doing ordering a pizza <laughs> like, and she's like she says something like sir if you don't get off i'm there's gonna have to blah 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 and he's like good good come down here and arrest me <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and something else about the portrayal of john mcclain that is is really important to note as well is the fact that he is vulnerable and he's a fallible hero like he has he has problems like he's not perfect like what we were comparing stallone and schwarzenegger to yeah um, i and i want to actually compare this to a marvel movie because that's all we have anymore is marvel movies yeah. uh, we've entered uh, the marvel singularity yeah exactly and so it's a good frame of reference for modern audiences and if you think about the marvel movies prior to the guardians of the galaxy we've got these infallible heroes these invulnerable heroes that you you really don't ever feel like they're you know going to fail or are are never going to drop the ball they're they're perfect from start to finish um yeah. maybe they have some internal struggles within but you never really they don't feel like bumbling idiots ever well and also their struggles seem a lot more like tony stark's a great example like mm-hmm. he's billionaire philanthropist blah 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 his probably his big character flaw is what like his own narcissism ego? Yeah. yeah ego and like you know, I mean, okay, yeah, we all, I think every single human being on the planet has a bit of an ego and has to struggle with it. But, like, mm. you know, it's harder to relate to a billionaire philanthropist than it is to, like, a 30-something dude whose marriage is in trouble. Yeah, and also, like, like think of the Guardians of the Galaxy again. Like, uh, think about Peter Quill in Guardians of the Galaxy. He's a character who has flaws. Like, he's not perfect. He doesn't get through every situation with a plan or or escape every situation in the intended way that he intends to. Yeah. And and so that's kind of that pivotal moment. And and this is a pivotal moment in action movies because we get the setup for this action hero that the studio didn't even know was going to be successful at this time or not because yeah. of prior films in the genre just didn't present that kind of a hero. And so this really pivoted into the more relatable kind of action hero at this point in time. Yeah, like it's um honestly the best scene in the movie is towards the end when his feet are all glassed up mm-hmm. and he's talking to Powell on the radio and he's like he has that great line where he says like, you know, she heard me say I love you a thousand times, but she never heard me say I'm sorry. <laughs> like fuck. <laughs> like this and, poor guy. And you just brought up Al and Holly, reference them there. And I actually wanted to maybe discuss this a little bit. In my opinion, there's actually four main heroes of this film. And, and those are John, Al, Holly, and Argyle. And each one of them rise to the occasion in their own way. And, and each play an important role in saving the day. And I think that actually is really helpful in A, making this a good Christmas movie, and B, just making this a really enjoyable movie to watch because we never, like, in the end, all of our heroes rise and and are successful. And, and we just, 
you know, like it's we don't have to see somebody fall. There there's no like, you know, none of them have to die and and kind of maybe blacken what is otherwise a really triumphant movie. Yeah, and it kind of, you know, it shows it maybe shows a more kind of united we stand mentality, right? Yeah. Like John can't figure this out on his own. Like he needs help, right? Mm-hmm. Even when he's doing his best on his own, like we still see there's that great scene where Holly stands up to Hans Gruber and mm. she's advocating for her coworkers, right? Or we're seeing Powell like trying to keep the dumb chief of police from killing everybody. Yeah. Right? Like <laughs> multiple times. Yeah. Also, I have to say I really admire the confidence on Argyle to not really know what was going on but still be brave enough to ram his limo into a vehicle and then punch him <laughs> yeah, punch him right in the face <laughs> and what a clean punch it was too like immediately knocked the guy out yeah and he actually that was an actual punch uh he accidentally hit the guy right in the face so <laughs> ouch but yeah, I, I really appreciate that aspect of the film. On the flip side, I think there's some really great depth to the villains of this movie as well. And I'm not just speaking about Hans, but I'm speaking, there's a well-rounded group of villains here. We see like the brothers, we see the, who who are betting on whether or not Joseph Tagagi is going to tell them what the code is or if he's going to be shot or not. Like little details like that. There's the comedian who's always kind of thrown out those one-liners and he's almost like too snarky for his own good. The guy cracking the safe, right? Yeah. So you didn't keep me around for my charming personality. Exactly. I, I, I smile at that every time. Yeah. Um, and Hans himself is just one of the greatest villains and greatest portrayal of villains in in films he's so self-assured with himself and he just he's got every situation planned for and he's like every everything is according to his plan yeah and also like okay the cinema therapy pointed this out the scene where holly stands up to him and she's like well like my one coworker is pregnant and she's sitting on a rock can we take her into my office and put her on a couch she's like no, but I'll have a couch brought out. Like, he's actually, like, he's he's professional, right? Mm-hmm. He's just, he's not compassionate. He's just professional. He's like, fine, I'll meet you halfway on this, right? Right. He's not just twirling his mustache at everyone. Yeah, exactly. He's, yeah, very, very well written. And I'm going to talk about that in effects and filming later about how, how all of this came to coalesce together. I want to talk about some of the little moments that I hadn't ever noticed or maybe I'd forgotten about in the mm-hmm. film. The depth of the storytelling here is is really special, and it's a film yeah. that you can either half-watch and still enjoy a lot or pay a ton of attention to and get a lot of cool details from. And on this watch is maybe the most detailed I've ever paid attention to this movie for this podcast and there's a couple things that i noticed on this that i maybe hadn't paid attention to as much before and in world building okay um, characterizations and for example the one that i noticed was that hans wanted the rest of his henchmen to essentially just lock john mccain in the elevator shaft and be done with him he was like the elevators are shut down just lock him in there and we don't have to worry about him. The whole <laughs> That's and, so pragmatic, right? Yeah. I don't and, want to fight this guy. And Carl's like, no, I'm going to murder him because he killed my brother. <laughs> right. And and that whole like plot device is the reason why John is still relevant throughout the movie. And it's really cool because that comes up later because Hans says to Carl, you know, if you'd listened to me earlier, we would have we wouldn't have been dealing with this problem anymore. There's this great line towards the end from Carl where him and John are having their big fight and mm. 
Carl says to him, like, we're both professionals, but this is personal. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's a great line. Yeah. By the way, I have to bring this up. When they're fighting and John says to him, like, you should have heard your brother squeal when I broke his neck. Right. I... As much as I love John McClane, that's got to be one of the most vicious burns a hero has ever given. <laughs> that's one of the most vicious things I've ever heard a hero say in a movie. Yeah, it wasn't heroic at that point. It was just vindictive. <laughs> yeah. It was... I'm not saying it like took me out of the movie or anything. I was just kind of like, wow. Like, okay. The, the other small detail that I noticed here and actually chuckled at was when the deputy police chief sends in the SWAT guys and um, so everybody's swarming the building and Powell's saying you know like you're sending these guys to the slaughter like you don't know who you're dealing with here and and what a little moment that I noticed this on this watch that had me laughing was the SWAT guys going through the bushes and this one SWAT guy touches some roses and he goes ooh Jesus roses (laughs) he like cuts himself I I forgot about that 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 moment because I was like oh this is like really great painting the picture of these guys are really not equipped to deal with what about is about to unfold. I will say, um, earlier I mentioned just the scope of the... You know, it's a, we watched... Jeez, uh, what's that Canadian movie we did a couple months ago? I wasn't here. It was Cube? MJ's. Cube, yeah. One of the things I found really interesting about Cube was how you never see the outside of the cube. Right. The whole movie takes place... Man, this is your cube redemption yeah. moment. <laughs> I've been sitting on this. But uh, <laughs> one of the things I really admired about Cube was how we there's no flashbacks. There's no exterior shots. We are in the cube with the characters. It really helps us identify with them, and it creates a huge sense of claustrophobia. Right. Whereas Die Hard kind of just, it shows that there's a whole world going on outside of Nakatomi Plaza. Yeah. Like, and... Just from a writing standpoint, it's so interesting how the terrorists are, they're easily the biggest threat to John, but everyone else is just constantly making things worse for him. Like, Mm -hmm. the reporters, the police, like, just, like, as a writer, you want to inflict as much pain and suffering and as much (laughs) tension. You want to create as much tension as you can. And it's funny how what's going on outside the tower is just making John's life more complicated. Right. Like, he's not just dealing with the terrorists. Like, there's that great scene where they try, like, like, I don't know, ramming the gate and the the terrorists shoot a bazooka at them. Yeah. And John gets on the radio and he's like, all right, Hans, you made your point. Like, let him go. Like, (laughs) it's really interesting. Or at the end when he's on the roof with the hostages and he's shooting his gun in the air trying to scare them back inside because yep. he found the detonators. And, then and the, the FBI is coming and they're like, oh, there's one of the bad guys. Yeah. Get Which, him. to be fair, he looks like he's covered in blood and shooting gun. He's firing his gun into the air. Pretty fair, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that they're shooting at him and he's now he's avoiding their bullets. Like, yeah, there's so many scenes like that that are just again so infinitely rewatchable like so entertaining and and you and some of them you forget between watches that you're like oh i forgot that this moment happened i forgot that they did that yeah yeah, like the build-up to the end when hans falls from nakatomi plaza like i forgot kind of how that all went with the gun taped to his back and everything um it's 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 a really great build-up and it's a really triumphant moment because john at that point has been kicked to the curb and and taken so much damage that it's like how is this guy going to pull this off and it's believable like the way he does it is is just so it's 
it's commendable. Like it, it's like I can't believe that you thought of the, how you were going to do this, and and you really pulled it off and the it's, way. It's so, it's so like in character too. Yeah, because it's like Hans would come up with probably like a very efficient, elaborate scheme. Like I feel like Hans would come up with a plan just to show off how smart and how sinister he is. John's just like, fuck it, I'm taping this gun to my back and then yeah. I'm going to shoot you with it. <laughs> it's like and the, hopefully like it goes well. Right, it's like the difference between a man with a hammer and a man with a scalpel. <laughs> yeah, and, and that kind of goes towards the the writers were intending with John's character is to basically be a cowboy, like basically be a character out of a Western film. Basically, um, yeah. And and that's where we get the, the fantastic line, the classic, yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Yeah, um, which was ad-libbed, right? Yes, and and from a... Well, no, sorry. It was not ad-libbed. It was a discussion point based on yippee-ki-yay kids from an old Western TV show for kids. And they huh. kind of... They bounced back around a couple of different ways that they were going to do that one. Okay, yeah, because, like, that's an iconic line nowadays, but, hmm. like, I was thinking about recently, like, what the hell is that from? Like, yeah, I could it almost find sounds, it again. It almost, I'm going to bring it back to Rick and Morty. It's almost like wubba lubba dub dub levels of gibberish. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, if I were if I were a terrorist and my adversary said that to me over the radio, I'd be like, I'd be like, are you having a stroke? Like, are you well, okay? <laughs> and that's that's like that great moment when Hans says it at the end too. Yeah. What is that you said to me? And then he does it with his accent that I'm yeah. not even going to pretend that I can do. Um, By the way, I think another one of my favorite moments is when Hans and uh, John run into each other. Yes. And they have their little kind of moment mm-hmm. and Hans affects a completely flawless american accent <laughs> i'm just gonna say it like <laughs> you should be on tv with that accent yeah yeah and like <sighs> watching it for the first like i did remember this one part but like again just from a writing standpoint like i can't imagine how unbearably tense that scene would be for a first time viewer especially mm-hmm. when john's like here can you handle this and he gives him a gun right right you're like oh shit don't do that john and of course it's unloaded Right. Again. And again, that's just, I think one of the great things about this movie is just that cat and mouse game between Hans and John. Like how, like Hans clearly wasn't expecting to run into him, but he Mm. just kind of panics, throws on an accent, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work, but (laughs) (laughs) he's John suspicious to say the least. I do love that moment though, where he's like, the guns unload. He's like, ah, you think I'm fucking stupid, Hans? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's lots of great scenes like that. The last kind of mention of something that I didn't notice, and I actually I I didn't follow my train of thought on this before I read this, but it was a theory online. Is uh, when Ellis and Gruber have their discussion together, and Ellis essentially sells out John to save everybody in his mind. There's the moment when John and Ellis are on the phone together, and Carl brings him a Coke. Uh, yeah. And so the most likely reason behind this is because, uh, and this is theorized online, that because of Ellis's cocaine habit, he oh, probably said man. to the Germans, could you get me some Coke? 
and and he was talking about obviously the drug and they the didn't candy, put that together yeah. and went and grabbed him like a coca-cola <laughs> that's actually really funny that yeah it completely it's, went over my head. yeah it's it's something that on an on the, a future watch i'm going to really appreciate that level of detail but you know i did want to talk about that scene that is because like ellis is presented as kind of this jackass and maybe even like a potential threat to john and holly's marriage right right like he's clearly you know he's the big corporate exec like he's obviously important within the business he's got the hots for holly he doesn't care that she's married or not married at all there's that great line at the beginning when John and Holly are talking and Holly's like, yeah, Ellis gets uh, depressed this time of year. You know, he thought he was God's gift. (laughs) (laughs) Like, wow, that's a great line. But uh, one thing that I did think was interesting was how he goes to Hans pretending that him and John are best friends and that he invited John. And then he gets on the radio and he's going to try to talk him to, he's trying to talk John into turning himself in because he thinks that if they just cooperate with the terrorists, everything will be fine, right? Right. The one thing I did think was kind of interesting is the fact that he didn't actually rat out Holly. No. And that's, I'm not saying that makes him redeemable. I just remember, like, when I watched this movie a couple nights ago, I'm like, oh crap, like, this is how Hans is going to find out that John and Holly are married. But in a way, like, I would, the word noble does not belong anywhere near Alice, but like, (laughs) I was a little kind of like, this is like not admirable, but it's kind of interesting that like, he is kind of putting himself on the line. But he he thinks he's above being at any risk. Like he right. thinks he sell himself like, as like, such a good salesman that he could he can sell the this whole plot to the Hans bad guys. Booby. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Which, actually, fun fact on that. Um, that was an ad libbed moment, and that was the first time that they had he had said that. And so the baffled look that Hans has after he says that was the honest response that Alan Rickman right? <laughs> yeah. like huh yeah yeah it's funny how um like Hans is clearly the villain right but right. like Ellis and the TV the journalist we almost hate them more yes because like we kind of we at least kind of respect Hans right but these guys are there's something very Slimy. Slimy. Yeah. Yeah, Slimy. Like, there's also just something kind of pathetic about them, right? Yeah. There's no, there's nothing, yeah, commendable about them. Like, you, you couldn't be like, well, you know, like, they're doing this for this purpose or, or X reason or Y reason. It's just like, they're in a place which is slimy and, and opportunistic. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, their personalities just like, they're not people that you would want to spend any time with. Whereas hanging out with Hans could be kind of fun in well, a sense. As long as you're on his side. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. Hans would come up with some pretty great plans. Yeah. Well, at least, yeah, I don't know. I just, again, but going back to that scene, I remember thinking like, it's interesting. The fact that Ellis is not like he, in his mind, he's selling out John, but he's not implicating Holly. Maybe because he's thinking he can, John will get killed and then he can just swoop in. But I did think that was kind of interesting that he didn't do 
the most deplorable thing. Yeah. Again, I'm not defending Ellis. I'm not secretly captain of the Ellis fan club. <laughs> I was just kind of like, oh, okay, like interesting. Yeah, he's not he's not a black and white bad character. No, he's just kind of um. He's just kind of pathetic. Yeah, like, he's pathetic. Yeah. That's a good yeah, way to put it. Like, even John, who's not in the room, is like, Ellis, tell them you don't know me. You're about to get killed. Like, yeah. <laughs> and he's even trying to reason with Hans. Like, Hans, I don't know this asshole. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. So, and even just, again, I have to just commend this movie for how, how much tension there is. The fact that there's the walkie-talkies in the radio. The fact that whenever... Like, John can't talk to anyone without Hans listening. Hmm. Like, that's so... Just from a tension standpoint, that's like, chef's kiss, right? Right, right. Like, he can't talk to anyone without, like, Hans listening in and overhearing it. Mm -hmm. So... And that's kind of why they talk in code a little bit in the beginning, where Powell doesn't know for sure that he's caught, but he has a hunch. Yeah, Roy, yeah. Yeah. There's there's one other scene that I want to actually mention, and it's the the vents. It's a very famous scene where John McClane is crawling through the vents to now kind of. Now I know what a TV dinner feels like. Yeah, yeah, there's some good lines in there. I I had to Google whether or not this was the first time that that was portrayed on screen because I think it's one of the more famous crawling through the vent scenes, and it's definitely something that we've seen often parodied or repeated in it's film almost, since. Uh, it's almost like a trope nowadays. Like even yeah. the, the Batman Arkham games is like hide in the vents. Like, right, exactly. Yeah. And so it's something that uh, like nowadays with the internet, like everybody knows that that obviously is not always practical in like 99% of situations. It has happened in real life though. Before. Has it? I, had, I did read that. But I, I found that the earliest use that I found was from It, The Terror from Beyond Space in 1958. What a title. Um, and then there was a 1962, I believe James Bond movie that also did something similar. So there's um, a movie where James Bond in like a three piece, three thousand dollar suit is calling through the fence. Yeah, so okay. it's uh, it's something that happened in the late '50s, early '60s, and had been utilized before this film. But I would definitely say that this is one of the more memorable crawling through the vents action scenes sequences. In some ways, the most iconic. Yeah, I would agree. The there's also that great scene where. Carl is standing under the vents and like poking them with yeah. the barrel. Yeah, what of his a tense gun. moment! Yeah, because he's just about to find John, but then something captures his attention. Yeah, that's kind of the other thing I want to bring up. Actually, one thing that I thought was interesting was the not exactly racial tensions, but there is some kind of. Well, let me just say, like, it's. I found it really interesting how there almost felt like there was some echoes of World War II in this movie. In the sense that, like, John's your classic blue-collar all-American guy, and then the bad guys are all European. Specifically, like, Hans and Carl are German. Um, there's the one guy who I think is Japanese. Well, the whole plaza is owned by a Japanese company. Yeah. And then one of the bad guys, I'm pretty sure one of the bad guys, Marco, is Italian. Right. So it's interesting how it's, like, all of America's old, quote-unquote, enemies have, like, come back with a vengeance and i thought that was interesting especially considering the fact that the john mcclain character in the book that this was based on was apparently a world war ii veteran yes and we're going to talk about the book uh very soon i think we'll move into our effects and filming yeah 
The other last kind of thing, actually, this is more effects and filming. Do you want to just move to effects and filming, or do you have any more scenes you want to share? Uh, I could talk about this for a while, so let's just move on. <laughs> okay, sounds good. All right, effects and filming. Based on a book, like you said, the book itself is called Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. A terrible title. Uh, yeah, especially for what the book is about. Um, <laughs> although, although, the book is quite a bit different than the... The movie portrayal, um, the book itself is much darker in tone than than the movie. I think I read that like the hero is actually almost a homicidal maniac in the book. Uh I didn't. I was going to say that actually. Oh, okay. um, I didn't read much about the character himself. Like I know that his name was Joe Le- Leyland or yeah. Leyland, and the reason why he's at the Nakatomi Plaza is because his daughter is there, and right. his daughter actually dies along with Hans, uh, they both fall off the building at the same time. And it's implied at the end of the novel that Joe is probably going to die from his wounds as well. It's almost kind of like how Rambo was based on a book. Or Rambo is a book first, and like <laughs> he dies in the book. But he goes on to become a muscle-bound action star, thanks to Hollywood. Yeah, and that's also something, and I'm getting a little off topic here with the book, but that's also something that's somewhat compelling about the movie that maybe has become less relevant now that we have so many sequels to the movie is that because John is so fallible, like you really don't know if he's going to survive. And and yeah. because he takes so much damage throughout the movie and, and there's so many great tension building scenes and moments and and even the ending it's like how is john going to save holly and with two bad guys here who both have weapons pulled on him and that's like it's it's really great building up of that and i've kind of lost my thought process of where i was going i, I think i'm right here with you don't worry <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i i didn't i haven't read the book but i think i read somewhere that there's like a scene in the book where like Leland takes one of the terrorist hostages, and then he just decides to kill him anyway. Right. So, like, I couldn't see John doing that. The actual story behind how the book was made was, uh, it's actually a sequel to The Detective, I believe the first book is called by Roderick Thorpe, and he got the idea from a dream, actually, after watching the movie The Towering Inferno, which stars Paul Newman and Steve McQueen. Um, A movie I haven't seen before, but I'd like to watch. Uh, you know what? Those two would make a good duo. They yeah. should do something with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to I'd like to watch that at some point and I've got it written down now for a potential movie we might do on the podcast. Interesting. And so he had that had the dream based on that, but also of like a man running around an office building being shot at and woke up and, and wrote nothing lasts forever. Similarities of the book and the film. There's like I we said, there's a lot of differences between tone and some of the setup. Mm-hmm. But some of the really great action moments uh from the movie are from the book. Like, for example, like crawling through the vents is was written in the book. Dropping the bomb down the elevator shaft was something that was in the novel. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, when John jumps off the roof with the fire hose, uh that was written in the novel as well. Um so it's almost kind of like they lifted all the action beats from the novel Mm. and the setting, but then they kind of put their own flavor on it yeah and even like the taping of the gun was behind his back was from the book and so you actually brought up a good point there the reason why it's different is because the book itself is 
told solely through the eyes of John. Okay. Um, so we don't know any of the other stuff happening around the plaza, like what Hans's main motivations are necessarily, or even like, you know, the stuff between Hans and Holly. It's almost it's almost like Cube, right? Like, yeah. It's almost like the camera, the book anyway, if it were a direct adaptation of the book, the camera would be right on john yeah and a lot of these changes actually came out of necessity of filming um which is what i wanted to talk about earlier because bruce willis himself almost didn't take the role because he's he was on the show moonlighting at this time which is a very popular show in the 80s that's right that's what he was primarily known for yeah and and so he, he took a bit of risk with this movie not only that but the producers took a risk with him and he turned it down because it was going to conflict with his filming of Moonlighting. Yeah. But by happenstance, his co-star became pregnant around this time. Bill Shepard, yeah. Yeah, and so they were they paused filming of Moonlighting so he was able to start the process of doing his portrayal of John McClane in this movie. And then at one point it kind of crossed over and they were doing both. So he was working like he was working all day doing his scenes for moonlighting. And then he would go at night and film his scenes for Die Hard, And that's why they had to do all this other writing and all this other depth really? to all the, the villains and the other characters is because they had to add more to the movie because they couldn't utilize John as much as he was originally intended to be used. And that's so interesting how that could have very easily crippled this movie, but it almost turns into a strength because, like, mm-hmm. like I said, like the, one of the things that I didn't remember about the movie was just the scope, like right. all the different players, yeah, that are revolving around John and Hans, yeah. and and that's what I was bringing up earlier. Like, there's so many positive aspects, like the depth of the villains and the depth of the heroes here is is something that you don't get in a lot of action movies uh, not even let today. alone no. yeah let alone other movies in general like i'm trying to think of the last action movie i saw like i haven't i haven't watched an action movie this year really yeah. i guess i watched the matrix but that, i guess our marvel movies action yeah they're movies? action movies but i haven't seen a marvel movie in a while um, uh the last marvel movie i saw was the new thor and spoiler alert uh it sucks <laughs> <laughs> but like <laughs> like a honest i feel like the only Honest to God, action movies I can think of right now are probably like the John Wick movies. Yeah. And the and, last one came out like three years ago. And and like to compare that to this, like think about how many great characters there are in portrayals and, and how they work with so little. Like there's so many really interesting lore to that that you kind of almost have to infer um, you're talking about John Wick? Yeah, John Wick. Like, the, yeah. like think about how many characters are in that, that universe and this movie does kind of something similar, but instead of the leaving it to the audience to infer these characters and their motivations and their personalities, this movie actually just has all of that, and it does it really well, and and that's a really big positive for me personally. Yeah, and even like you know, it's kind of funny how things go in circles, right? Because I almost feel like John McClane and Bruce Willis was sort of a reaction to like the Invincible Superman of the 80s and now here we are in the 2020s and like you know like there is some nuance to a guy like john wick but for the most part like he's what like what are the body counts in those movies right yeah like in number three he murders <laughs> in the first five minutes he kills a guy with a book yeah which is awesome but like and, you know there's a little bit of emotional nuance to the fact that he's grieving for the loss of his wife but yeah so now in 10 years after the john wick movies get tired we're gonna have a new vulnerable action hero 
Yeah. It's, by, yeah, it's a cycle. Played I by agree. me. So on the kind of uh, the train of thought of the writer and the screenplay of the movie. So we, we had our original write of the of the film and and the intention of John McClane's character. But Stephen E. D'Souza also rewrote the script as well after That's that. The director. Um, no, it's another screenwriter. There's oh, okay. a couple screenwriters on this. And so he decided to, he wanted to kind of blend more action and comedy together. And he had some experience coming into this movie with that. And he also, when he wrote the film, decided to approach his his writing of the screenplay with Hans as the central protagonist of the film. Um, and he basically, his reasoning for that was if... Hans hadn't planned the robbery and put it all together, then McLean would have just gone to the party and either reconciled or not reconciled with his wife. So he said, sometimes you should think about looking at your movie through the point of view of the villain, who is really the one driving the narrative, uh, which is a really interesting way to to think about and conceptualize writing. And I thought that was something that maybe you'd really appreciate as a writer, taking a different approach or perspective to your your writing style to really maybe add those layers in there that might not have been in there yeah. well, that in the is, first right. That interest that is interesting that like in a lot of in a lot of works of fiction, the heroes are just reacting to the villain. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's almost kinda like um Well, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a, a great example yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. Or even um I remember when Infinity War came out, people were blown away by it and how uh, the Russo brothers decided to essentially make Thanos the protagonist. Like, right. That is a really interesting point because, yeah, you're right. Like, you know, like what is a hero without a villain, right? Because mm-hmm. then it's just a domestic drama of uh, John McClane. Maybe there's another timeline where Die Hard is just... John McClane being miserable at the party and realizing that like his marriage is going to fail and fall apart. Yeah, it's inevitable. Yeah. Just like Thanos. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, what you were actually mentioning earlier is is I think you said that you were like you you commended the storytelling, the storyboarding of of the movie and how everything felt very cohesive and well-written. Yeah. Um Funny enough, though, a lot of the film wasn't actually storyboarded because the cinematographer basically said, you know, if we storyboard all this, then my job's redundant, essentially. Um, <laughs> what and, a weird thing to say. Yeah. So basically, they just like, they were like, okay, we want to shoot uh, this part of the story today. And then they, him and the director would just kind of work on how they would film it and shoot in, in, in detail. They just kind of wing it, eh? Yeah. And, and basically like they would talk about like the feeling or the sensation that they wanted to convey with, with those shots and with, with that scene. And so that's, that's kind of what their focus was. And, and his focus in particular was he wanted to create a dramatic uh, shot rather than attractive shots, like really well, like huh. yeah okay uh, interesting and, and so to push the plot over just making really beautiful looking set pieces or shot piece in like the he set. wanted it more dynamic as opposed to yeah just focusing on well-composed pretty shots yeah like like maybe less stanley kubrick and and more michael bay <laughs> that's a okay. bad comparison but <laughs> i get what you mean though yeah michael bay wishes he could make a movie this good yeah <laughs> Whatever happened to Michael Bay? Is he still making He's movies? He's still very relevant to 
the people who like Michael Bay, which I, clearly probably is... Probably not anyone listening to this podcast. <laughs> you, you, know, never Ma- know. you never Michael know. Michael Bay's laying in bed right now listening to this podcast with like tears streaming down his cheeks because he was a big fan. Yeah, I'm not a big Michael Bay fan myself, but I enjoy some of his movies. They're movies that you don't think too hard during. You know what? He's like the cinematic equivalent of like Nickelback. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like, kind of a guilty pleasure. Yeah, I would not- agree. Probably doesn't deserve the flack it gets. That's probably it's, enough Michael Bay that we have you know to talk what? about. You know too. what? Michael Bay, Nickelback, probably doesn't deserve the flack it gets, but kind of just fun to dunk on. <laughs> All right. There's there's our Michael Bay discussion and die. I didn't think I'd be today. talking about Michael Bay when I woke up this morning, but here I am. Oh, man. The first scene that Bruce Willis acted out for the movie was the scene when he jumped from the roof of Nakatomi Plaza with the fire hose wrapped around him that was the actual first scene and so he he did a lot of his own stunts in the film i read that yeah and so he was basically going supposed to jump off a parking garage about 25 feet high and then there was a 60 foot wall of flame that was going to explode behind him and he basically like the explosion actually almost pushed him away from the airbag that he was supposed to land on <laughs> and he barely like he barely landed on it and so the crew thought that they had killed Bruce Willis in the first day of him filming. whoops <laughs> so that's going to be a rough call to make to the producer yeah um but like he like Bruce Willis really put his body on the line for this though like he actually suffered permanent hearing yeah loss. i read that like he lost two-thirds of his hearing, right? Because of a malfunctioning squib or something? Yeah, when they were doing the scene where the guy's standing over the table shooting him from Marco, above. the Italian. Yeah, yeah. and so when... when Bruce shoots up top like uh, the sound from the gun because they were using real guns as well. The sound from it basically almost made him deaf in in that moment, which is unfortunate for him personally. Yeah. (laughs) He really put himself out there for us. I guess so. Jeez, Um, that is unfortunate. Yeah. He almost died. He lost two-thirds of his hearing. Yeah, and in a lot of his movies subsequent, he was wearing hearing aids in them, and it's not something that you notice in in a lot of his films. Wow, that's really... I shouldn't romanticize that, but that's really suffering for your art, right? Yeah. I guess... From his perspective, like, if he's got has to be injured doing a movie, it may as well be, like, his best movie. Yeah, I agree. On the flip side, a scene that you might have thought looked quite gruesome was when he was walking through all of the glass. Um, And I was interested in, in how that got pulled off. And apparently he was wearing basically, like, feet shoes. Like, they made him, like, rubber shoes almost that looked like his feet to pick up the glass and so it wouldn't damage his actual feet. And... Apparently, if you pay really close attention to those scenes, you'll note that his feet look like kind of comically big. So like, it's something that I'll be paying attention to on my so next rewatch. It looks re-watch. like a hobbit in those scenes. Yeah, apparently yeah. it's something to maybe pay a little bit more can attention we, to and see if you, you can know, notice it. This is what I mentioned about how good this movie is in terms of like like little things paying off in big ways. Like mm-hmm. at the start of the movie, he's on the plane and the guy says to him. You know, all you got to do is just take your shoes and socks off, make a fist with your feet. Hmm. That'll help you feel grounded after you land. So he does that after his fight with Holly. Terrace shows up. He runs, he leaves, 
He's barefoot the whole movie. Remember he kills Carl's brother? And he's like, all the terrorists in the world, and I gotta kill the one with uh, feet smaller than my sister's. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's talking, later on, he's having his chat with Hans, when Hans is pretending to not be himself. Mm-hmm. He notices that he's barefoot, and then they're having their big shootout, and Hans has his big, shoot the glass. Yeah. And then he's walking through broken glass. Like, it's just little thing, like... That's why this movie is so great. Just those little things that pay off in big ways. Right. It's funny how nobody could picture Bruce Willis as an action star. Now, like, I actually, a few years ago, I went back and I watched a couple episodes of Moonlighting, you know, the 80s show that he was famous for, where he was mostly a comic actor. And it's funny how, because of Moonlighting, people in the 80s only saw him as a comic actor until this movie came out. But then because of this movie, I went back and rewatched Moonlighting, and I had a hard time picturing him as a comic actor. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's interesting how his legacy just did a dramatic 180. I'd but like to see Moonlighting at some point. I will say, he's fantastic in Moonlighting. Like, I, I believe I it. I was watching it, I'm like, wow, he's hilarious. Like, Bruce Willis <laughs> is pretty funny. And I mean, you could see that in this movie too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, let's move into score. And I gotta ask you, like, you're not somebody who noticed the score, whereas I do. Did you notice this score at all? Was there anything about this score that you really appreciated? I noticed uh, the dramatic stings. Did you did you like how they kind of made classic Christmas melodies into like action packed tension building kind of melodies? I don't know that I even noticed that to be honest. That's fair. I'm the uh, wrong guy to talk to about score. Yeah, so the the score was made by Michael Kamen, uh, who also scored some movies that we've done on the podcast, including The Iron Giant, um, which Ooh. is a great film. But he also Tight. did the original X-Men movie, Band of Brothers, which is a massive TV show that is still on my watch list. And also the second and third installments of Die Hard was involved in those. Should we talk about the sequels? Oh, we will. We're getting okay. there. We're getting there. He mixed melodies of Ode to Joy, Winter Wonderland, and Singing in the Rain into his score to kind of make an atmospheric like Christmas score that was also like... Like I said, it it kind of had that action tone, that tension building, and and kind of the influence behind this was the film A Clockwork Orange by Stanley Kubrick, and that's what the director was going for as well. And and there's a direct reference to Ode to Joy, which is used in there, and Singing in the Rain. Tonally, you could not get two more different movies than A Clockwork Orange and Die Hard. Yeah, um, huh. but it's funny that we we got arrived at similar score composing for it and that's what the director envisioned when he thought of the score of this movie and what Hmm. he was going for as well however there's a cool connection here to another one of my favorite movies is the movie aliens oh yeah end scene where Powell shoots Carl, the music that's used there was actually unused track from the movie aliens and they didn't use it there and they decided to clip it and put it in that moment can we talk about Powell's character arc for a moment? Yeah, I'm very I, much in. First of all, I love Powell. I the actor, like the dialogue, how he becomes John McClane's like vo- advocate from the outside. Mm-hmm. I think he's a great character. And his whole thing is he mentions to John that he accidentally shot a third. Okay, remember earlier when I said there's might be some things that modern mm-hmm. audiences can't get behind. Yes, the whole thing about how so Powell's whole thing is that he accidentally shot a 13 year old with a toy gun. Right, and. Ever since then, he's been a desk jockey, and he's been unable to pull his gun in the line of duty. Yeah. And it's framed as, like, this is a really sad, tragic thing Mm -hmm. for him, Powell. 
yeah. not the kitty shot. Yeah. And then there's that, it's, it's a great moment, but I'm kind of conflicted about it because at the end, like Hans is dead. Carl shows up, waves his gun around. Powell whips out his revolver and shoots him. Hmm. And it's kind of this big dramatic, oh snap, like Powell got his groove back. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's overcome his trauma. And I was watching it and I'm like, it is kind of a cool moment and you kind of get swept along with it at first. But I was thinking about, it, I'm like, what is the moral of this story? Like the the best way to get over accidentally shooting a child is to shoot an adult on purpose. So that's actually a really good discussion that I was reading online a little bit, how this movie is essentially, at its core, the theme is redemption through violence. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's a great point. And I think I think you're right. Like That is something that, in this particular rewatch, because I hadn't actually seen this movie for probably two or three years, I actually picked up on that. I thought, you know, like for today's modern audience, that plot point is no longer tragic for the police officer. Yeah. It's, it's let's think about everybody who's involved in that like you do kind of wince a little bit that because you're like you know like like today we look at that and we go like you know that police officer was bad and they were dumb and right and it's their fault and it not necessarily wasn't anybody's fault but his but uh, like you know it kind of shows that other side of things that it would be a lot to ask a modern viewer to sympathize with a cop who shot a child yes that would be a hard sell even um there's that moment uh, earlier in the movie where John pulls his gun on Heinrich, Carl's brother, and Heinrich's like, oh, you won't shoot me. Like, you're a cop. You have rules. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, that's what my captain keeps trying to tell me. Yeah. And it's kind of like a cool, macho one-liner. But also, from a 2022 perspective, you're kind of like, ugh. Like, yeah. Ugh. <laughs> I, I recently watched Dirty Harry, and I kind of got the same vibe from that. And and Dirty Harry is kind of trying to glorify that a lot um, because yeah. it's coming in from a very different perspective. And it made me kind of squirm almost a little bit because it, it does feel feel more out of place in 2022 now like than ever well it's in it even like going back to powell like you know his whole thing is it's almost like you know i accidentally shot a child and now i'm a desk jockey and it's almost kind of like he's been emasculated yeah or he's like a bird with clipped wings mm-hmm. right and then he whips out his gun and shoots the terrorists and it's almost kind of like yeah like again it's like powell got his groove back it's almost like and now, through this act of protective violence, he's, you know, he's got his balls back, for lack right. of a better phrase, yeah. right? Which is, again, I like Paolo and I like the character, and it is kind of a cool moment, but it is also, it's hard to really get behind that moment these days. Yeah. And the message of that moment, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know. It's like, good job, Paolo. Like, here's your badge and gun. Now get out there and... Yeah. Try not to shoot any more kids. Yeah, no, I very much agree. And it was something that stuck out with me as well. I'm glad you brought it up because yeah. that's a that's a good discussion point. That's something that's relevant for modern audiences and, and for who we're appealing to on this podcast. Yeah, even um, maybe the fact, also the fact that he's a, I mean, you know, the fact that he's a black police officer might make it a little more palatable to a modern audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is... The context is different now. But you're right, though. Just redemption through violence. It's Mm -hmm. a very... I guess... There's a lot of thematic discussion about that online. Yeah. Even, like, um, you know, I I did do a little bit of looking into, like, the critical consensus of this movie and how 
John McClane is kind of, for his time anyway, and kind of still now, he's almost comes across as a much more vulnerable than like, you know, Stallone or Schwarzenegger, like a more maybe emotionally intelligent man. Hmm. But it's and but it's still kind of he's a very macho, masculine, violent figure who's taking care of the bad guys. But one thing that some critics did point out is that there is a lot of dumb macho posturing going on around John, like right. the chief of police or the FBI or even the TV guy, you know? Yeah. And they're kind of, they're getting into trouble because they're charging in guns blazing without thinking. Right. So like, in a way, this movie is maybe a little critical of, let's say, masculinity mm-hmm. while still kind of glorifying that violent masculine ideal. Yeah, and that is something, again, that's been discussed quite a bit online about the movie and the portrayal of of John and, and what his character means to the shift in the action star, the ideal action hero. Even just, um, like, this movie takes place in 1988, and there's kind of this, this tension under the surface in the fact that Holly is probably doing better than John. Oh, like, yeah, Like, she's got definitely. a better job, like... She's probably more respected, and John is, you know, it's... He's a street cop. He's a street cop, yeah, which isn't, you know, necessarily a bad job, but he's, you know, and, uh, you know, again, it's not really focused on too much in the movie, but this idea that, like, yeah, like, you know, John's kind of a blue-collar, old-fashioned dude, and now he's got his wife out in California with all these yuppies, and she's making more money than him and she's got more prestige than he does like that's got to contribute to how threatened he feels yeah and he there's that self-loathing that's bubbles up every now and again within the movie like that first kind of conflict that when he brings up to holly like you know like you left and you didn't come back kind of thing yeah or like you you know you're going by your maiden name yeah and and it's it's funny because you know on this rewatch like I, I kind of had forgotten moments like that. And, and you so you see that and you're like, oh, like, John, like, you really should be saying Fine, that. Buddy. And then immediately after that scene, he, he reflects, he's like, you know, like, I'm such an idiot. Like, why would I do that? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, he's like, I'm literally self-sabotaging myself. Like, yeah. And, and I'm doing it constantly. And he acknowledges it. And it's, it's again, like, it's a very much in contrast to a lot of other main heroes who, who don't ever really acknowledge their, their faults. And and yeah. and when they they make mistakes and and it's really something that you know you really empathize with him because it's like you know like you've been in those regrettable situations before been, where you're like I wish I didn't do what I just did but I also don't know how to walk it back and fix it now yeah like it's almost like he's aware that what he's doing is like he's aware that he's kind of pigheaded yeah but he's also maybe not emotionally smart enough to get himself out of it yeah which is a sad position to be in when like you know you're doing something wrong but you don't know how to stop yeah you know that's something i'm sure we can all relate to at certain points or another i mean not me obviously (laughs) (laughs) you know i I see it in others yeah i'm flawless but, (laughs) but i digress i'm gonna have to walk through broken glass to humble myself later (laughs) Uh, look back at the times. I, I want to mention a couple things. Uh, the film at that time was pitched as Rambo in an office building. That's really funny. And the expectations for Die Hard's performance at the box office were, were pretty low up to the point of like them actually having filmed it and, and 
being ready to putting it out because like you said before like bruce willis was known for being a comedic tv actor not like an action hero and so they really didn't know how to pitch that and because of like his more grounded and and relatable portrayal like every man yeah yeah it was so in contrast to the action movies of that time period that they were really t- honestly taking a risk with this movie and and funny enough the critical analysis of the film at that time was really mixed. Like, like middling, yeah. yeah. I think I read Roger Ebert gave it two out of four stars. Yeah, he was very he was actually more even more negative than that. And he his main focal point of his hatred, what what he directed it towards, was the character of Chief Dwayne Robinson. And he basically said that the character was unnecessary, useless, dumb, and prevented the movie from working. Gee, Roger, that's <laughs> kind of the point. Yeah, and and it's funny because it's the depth that you and I really appreciated of this movie. And it's, yeah. it's so funny because eventually, you know, he saw the other movies and, and really liked the other movies in the series and actually changed his opinion on Die Hard later on once once his, his viewing of it had matured. So it's, you know, going back to Stanley Kubrick, I recently read that when The Shining first came out, people fucking hated it. Yeah. And then it was, I don't know, like five or six or 10 years later, all of a sudden everyone turned around and was like, no, wait, that was actually brilliant. Yeah. And yeah. It, it, it seems to be like, Movies pre-internet are more able to do that because there's less accessible ways to review them. Maybe? Or maybe re-watch them? Yeah, well, maybe. definitely like pre-VCR era, right? You'd sure. see the movie in the theaters and then you might never see that movie again. Yeah. Unless it's maybe playing on TV. You happen to catch it on TV and it becomes famous through there. But Even then, yeah. Yeah, so... And and some movies became famous just because they were on TV for a number of years. Like thinking if it's a wonderful life, keeping on theme with the Christmas era. Like that movie did horrible back in the day, but because it was so cheap to re-air, they just kept re-airing and re-airing, yeah, and it classic. became a, a staple. Yeah, and then it just Stockholm syndrome eventually kicked in. Exactly. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, even um, it's funny. Before we started recording, we were talking about Doctor Sleep, and I think mm-hmm. it came out in like November of 2019, and. Not many people went and saw it, but then it started streaming and all of a sudden people were like, oh, hey, that wasn't that bad. Well, that was also in part as well the effect of the director's cut and getting more of a sense of what the directors wanted to present from the movie versus what the studio forced them to cut down for a theater widespread audience appeal. Oftentimes, the creative director behind the film is the one you should probably be listening to, who has a clear picture of what the end product should be. I wonder if, like, with the success of the Doctor Sleep director's cut and the Snyder cut, if we're going to get a lot more of those. I don't know. I would like to see directors have more autonomy away from the studios uh, to present what they want to present. And there are certain directors who have that level of authority and respect in the biz. Like, no producer is going to give Quentin Tarantino That was That was exactly... Tarantino was going to be my first choice. Exactly. And it was something as well that, like, for example, Stanley Kubrick really championed in all of his films because he had, I believe it was Spartacus. Yeah. He he didn't love the direction that the studio took with that. And so... He he put that in his contract that he had final say on on final all cuts. Cut privileges. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and there's films throughout movie history that the director's cut of 
influenced the modern i guess not the modern but that influenced the the understanding and the the Bla- critical acclaim of a film blade runner is probably the most famous blade runner the the other one that i was thinking of was kingdom of heaven the direct oh, i've watched yeah, the director's yeah. cut of it and it was actually a really good movie the right director's cut. the theatrical cut kind of sucked right yeah it was i mean they cut like an hour out of that movie or something i've also heard you're not gonna like this i've also heard that the batman versus superman director's cut is shockingly good i heard it was shockingly okay okay so <laughs> i uh, we heard different things yeah and and that's not something that i'm ever going to explore or we're ever going to watch for this podcast because it's modern and i have no interest in it and you hate it yeah okay <laughs> yeah Getting back to, <laughs> right. to Die Hard. This is the episode where we talk about where I bring up a lot of different directors. Yeah, we're doing a lot of random discussion, but that's all right. We it's like we're the, uh, we're the police circling the building trying to figure out what's going on yeah. and failing spectacularly. So getting back to the legacy of the film, thinking of Die Hard and, and the movies, the action movies that followed this, especially in the 90s, it's funny because a lot of those films were pitched not only in the studio room to the execs but also even like on posters and and like for movie pitches to audience they were basically like pitching movies like it's the die hard on a or it's the die Die hard in a kind of thing and and that that was the pitch that they used and a lot of them weren't anywhere near successful to the die hard itself the original movie and also the franchise as a whole that it became and we're very close to talking about those don't worry okay (laughs) (laughs) the other cool thing that i was reading about is the directors who were directly inspired by this film within their movies a couple of them names that you've probably heard darren aronofsky brad bird who we talked about oh yeah uh, brad bird the Aryan giant already on this film or on this podcast episode, but also in a previous episode, Dan Trackenberg and Paul W. Sanderson all very wow. notably mentioned this movie as primary inspirations. James Gunn also mentioned this movie in 2020 during COVID that uh, this was like a must-watch movie, like something you should check out with the family at home. You know what? This, this movie almost could kind of... You can kind of get some James Gunn energy from it. Yeah, I, I would mean, agree. Or maybe... James Gunn has some diehard energy, but yeah, that's besides the point. Okay, it's time for sequels, prequels, and reboots. So, okay. Die Hard spawned a franchise that has three sequels, and Four. despite popular belief, there's potentially a fourth movie that I believe is actually a fable, a parody that doesn't exist, that may star Bruce Willis, although I cannot confirm or deny that. You don't need to watch that one. But you are correct. We're gonna focus on the three sequels. Can I? Can I just say that? Yeah. Just bro- dropping the pretense for a sec. I saw the fifth one in theaters with my friend Vanessa. I remember nothing from it. Like <laughs> absolutely nothing. Like it was. Uh, and I have good memory when it comes to movies, but mm-hmm. like I just completely blocked it out of my mind because it doesn't exist yeah because it it doesn't exist it doesn't exist and it can't hurt you right and i just stared at a blank wall for two hours it's it's maybe the best example of you don't need to read all the books or watch all the movies or see all the tv episodes you are oh it is okay to sometimes just drop things off at a good point and just walk away it's like how it's like how game of thrones you just stop after season six right yeah yeah i remember um that uh, there's that one episode of Brooklyn Nine Nine where Jake and Boyle are talking, and I forget what the context is, but Jake's like, 
Boyle, it's going to be okay. And Boyle's just like, ah, that's what you said about Die Hard 5. <laughs> <laughs> but let's focus on right. the first three Die Hard movies. So I, I love the naming scheme of these movies. Oh, yeah. Classic. Uh, so we have Die Hard 2, Die Harder, which... <laughs> is that real? Yes. Okay. That is that is legit what the movie title is. And that's not the tagline. That's the actual title. Yes, Die, Die Hard 2, Die Harder. Okay. Um, no notes. No notes. Yeah. It, the third movie is... Oh, sorry. The second movie, before I move on, is actually also based on Christmas Eve. It takes place around an airport. It's a really cool setting for an action movie that hasn't really cropped up before. And and not, I'm not talking really on the planes. Like, it's really on the ground kind of setting at the airport. You know what? I think I remember like one or two moments from that movie and that's it. See, I've watched nothing. all of these movies numerous times, so okay. I, I'm I'm a I'm a pretty big diehard diehard fan. Okay. And I did it again. Zing <laughs> All uh, right. This the oh. third movie in the series, Die, Die Hard, Hard with, with a Vengeance. With a vengeance. That's yes. right. With and- your Jeremy Irons. Yes, as Jeremy Irons as the bad guy. Hans, Hans Gruber's, Gruber's brother. Yes. That's right. And and we get Bruce Willis starring alongside Samuel Jackson for one of the best action duos in my in movies, period. I loved those two together in that movie. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, so, okay, Die Hard and Die Hard 2, Die Harder, yeah. take place on Christmas Eve, right? Hmm. And after the first two movies, they drop the pretense. And I think... Like, Die Hard 3 just takes place wherever, right? At some other time. Yeah. But there's a moment in the movie when, like, all the cops are busy with something. So this kid steals something from a store, and John McClane stops him. And the kid just shouts at him, like, hey, man, it's Christmas. Meaning, like, meaning like meaning it metaphorically. Meaning, like, it's open right. season. So for years, my sister and I had an argument where she's like, well, Die Hard 3 takes place on Christmas Eve. That kid said it was Christmas. I'm like, that's not what he meant. <laughs> like, yeah. And we just argued incessantly for years over that. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a great movie. Like, I, I really enjoy that one. It's probably my second favorite of the series. I seem to. Re- I barely remember the sequels, but I seem to remember the third one being like the second best. Yeah, I really enjoy it, and it's partially because we have some really great new characters in the movie. And I mean, Jeremy Irons is fantastic and yes. everything, right? Yeah, exactly. The fourth movie is called Live Free or Die, Die Hard, Hard, which is uh, Bruce Willis and Justin Long together on, I believe it's the 4th of July, Independence Day. So they do kind of circle sense. back at that point. It's the only movie of the series to not have an R rating. They tone okay. down the swearing and the violence in it to try to appeal to more wider audience to get teenagers to the movie theaters see it. And you know what? I can't verify this for sure, but I'm pretty sure that's the first Die Hard movie I saw. And then I went back and my parents showed me the other ones. I would be shocked because that one's kind of a more modern. I think it came out in like 2007. Don't quote me on yeah, that. But see, around you and that I time. would have been like 14. Yeah. So like if they were trying to attract teenagers, it worked. Yeah, exactly. I definitely watched the first Die Hard first and then got the whole box set, I think, for my dad for Christmas. And then we got really into the Die Hard series at that point in time. And when that movie came out was when we bought the box set. And you know what? I think Live Free or Die Hard is a great entry to end the series on. Yeah. And I'm glad that's what they chose to do. Yeah. Uh, Good Day Die Hard is a film name for an idea for a fifth movie that may or may not have been made, and we we don't need to talk about it any more than that. Because it never happened. Yeah, because I've never seen it and have no plans on watching a movie that doesn't exist. 
That's correct. Why would you watch a movie that doesn't exist? <laughs> um, Why would you do such a thing? Although, I have an extra bonus movie to watch in the Die Hard series, and that is the soft prequel to Die Hard, which is called The Detective, based on the original book, right. The Detective, that the author of Nothing Lasts Forever wrote. That starred Frank Sinatra, it right? It did star Frank yeah. Sinatra. 1968. It's very different in tone. It's a neo-noir crime film. So other than basically the original ideas of the author and the connection there, there really isn't much other connection to Die Hard. Although it probably is a good watch. Like I'd be, I'd be really interested in watching a Frank Sinatra performance because I've never seen a Frank Sinatra movie. I don't think I could pick Frank Sinatra out of a crowd. <laughs> ring a ding ding nice i i probably couldn't either to be honest but i do know have an idea of what frank sinatra looks like because i've seen him recently it would be a picture of him i think i don't know if we talked about this or not but like this was originally supposed to be a Die Hard was originally envisioned as a sequel to the frank sinatra movie but yes. i don't frank sinatra didn't want to do it and like because he was old yeah at that point old as balls so like this movie came out 20 years after the detective Right, so then they just said screw it, and then they made him John McClane. And even in the book, he was he was an older action hero in the book, and yeah, like and, a World War II veteran. Yeah, and they just they didn't like the idea of that in the book, and and they decided to change that and and change the portrayal. I guess what I should mention is all of the three sequels that exist of Die Hard are all actually related on unrelated pieces of fiction. Like there's there's a couple of books and then i believe one like newspaper article that each of these were were based off of so they're all all based on literary so they're all adaptations yeah they're all of. adaptations which but is really just, neat that is interesting mm-hmm. they just imagine if like my book sells and then a studio comes to me like we want to purchase your book but we're gonna put batman in it yeah, like, or we're gonna okay. we're gonna workshop it into the Game of Thrones world. <laughs> yeah, I'm like what? <laughs> yeah, like, they're like okay. Yeah, it's possible. That's, that it, is possible. It could happen. And then John McClane is is running through everything. Yeah, uh, suddenly Indi- old Indiana Jones shows up. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just be sitting there in the theater with popcorn, like I have no notes. <laughs> <laughs> It's fantastic. <laughs> I could have made it better myself. <laughs> yeah. Why didn't I think of this? <laughs> that is really interesting. Yeah. All right, it's time to wrap things up with our personal review and the partner factor. Okay. I guess I'll start. This is my favorite Bruce Willis movie, without a doubt. Absolutely. Um, It's my favorite Alan Rickman performance, without a doubt. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. It probably is in my top 10 movie list. I think it's, if it's not the first place action movie of all time for me personally, it's definitely second. And it's probably tied, honestly, with my favorite Christmas movie. The other one being Christmas Vacation. So <laughs> Chevy Chase. Yeah, those are my two go-tos when I'm watching a Chris, looking for a good Christmas movie around this time of year. Jess also watched this with me and said, "Yeah, that was great. I love Die Hard." Was it her first time watching it? No, I forced her to watch it once, <laughs> uh, probably two or three years ago. Okay. I did not watch it with a partner. I watched it with my mother. Yep. <laughs> but no, we had a great I had a great time. We both had a great time. Like honestly, like you know, I can usually find something to complain about with most movies mm-hmm. or at least 
a suggestion maybe or something that rubbed me the wrong way actually fun fact i have one criticism of the oh i do too so let's do the criticism part right now okay i'll go first okay my one criticism and it's not even a huge criticism i wouldn't even necessarily take it out of the movie Uh but the fact that naven is cheating on his biker girlfriend did you say naven 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 johnson naven johnson from the jerk (laughs) yeah yeah what what do you what do you wait are we talking about die hard are we talking about the jerk i said i had one piece of criticism for the jerk that i forgot to bring oh what did you think i was talking (laughs) about you were gonna criticize die hard and i was like wait a second nathan johnson makes an appearance in die hard (laughs) i must have missed that one oh my god i think michael has a brain condition too (laughs) he hates the (laughs) kids No, okay, I was, what I said was, I can normally think of something to complain about for most movies. Then I was like, oh, actually, I do have one criticism oh, oh, yeah, of the okay, jerk. Oh, yeah, okay, go ahead. My one criticism <laughs> of the jerk from last week is, I think it might be a little out of character that Naven was cheating on his girlfriend, however briefly. Or it's like his yeah. bike, biker lover lady. I wouldn't even necessarily change the script or take it out. It's just my one little nitpick. Okay. But now back to Die Hard. What I was saying is... We're doing a Die Hard. We're doing a Die Hard. <laughs> All right, Steve Martin, you can get out. I'm putting Steve Martin back to one side. What I could say is <laughs> with most movies, I have something to complain about or something I don't like. Right. I'm Usually for me, I'm always like, that movie was five minutes too long or that mm-hmm. movie was 20 minutes too long. I have no complaints about this movie. I think it... Pacing's... Did. Perfect. Yeah, no, like those things we mentioned that maybe don't age well or hold up as well. Like, I, I mean, I don't really have much to complain about with this movie. Yeah. So my nitpick of the movie, and this is a really small nitpick, but we actually brought it up in another podcast episode, something similar that happened. And then I saw it in this movie and I thought, ah, I got to bring it up because I noticed it in this one too. Okay. Is the final end piece sequence with... It's really down to Hans, Holly, John, and then there's the American terrorist robber guy who's also got the gun in that sequence. You know who I'm talking about? The the guy, the dark, yeah, the guy. Yeah, the who's last, down? The last terrorist left. Besides yeah, Hans. he he was down in like pretending to be the receptionist. So when he gets shot, he gets shot right in the head, like point blank almost, and he screams after he gets shot. And that was actually something that Jason and I noticed back when we did the Soylent Green episode, and it was more blatant in that, like the woman gets shot and then sends out a blood-curdling scream after like half her head's been blown off, and I noticed it in this one too and went, ah, I can't not see this anymore. Is that a is that impossible though? Like, I don't think you die immediately if you get shot in the head. I don't know. You might have time to scream. Maybe, but it was a nitpicky moment for me. But because I noticed it in another movie, I had to bring it up on this okay, one too. That might just be a you criticism. Maybe but it was. It's so small too. I see right? your point. It's literally yeah. the only criti- point of criticism I have. Otherwise, this is uh, like this is a perfect movie in my opinion. Like I said, it's my. Yeah. T- it's one of my top tens. Yeah, it's it's one I'd of the twenty my... movies or fifty movies in my top ten movies. <laughs> I would say I'd probably put it in my top twenty. Yeah, yeah. Is there any quotes or anything else that you want to end off with before we wrap her up? Just this is a really small moment, but like when the two FBI agents show up and it's a white guy and a black guy, it's like it's Johnson and Johnson, no relation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that was so funny to me. Or later when they're flying the helicopter over the building and the white guy's like, it's just like goddamn Saigon. And the black guy's like, 
Bro, I was in middle school when that happened. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Actually, that's a great point. I wasn't going to bring this up, but because we're talking about this, um, the white Agent Johnson is somebody you might have seen before. And it's uh, it's funny because out of all the times I've watched this movie, I've always thought, I've seen that guy before and I can't remember where I've seen him. And he plays one of the Fratelli brothers in The Goonies one of the bad guys and oh. and i and i was like and as soon as i read that i was like oh why didn't i look that up earlier this would have saved me so much confusion over the years huh i've never actually seen the goonies what yeah never what? seen it how have you never seen it's the about goonies? kids looking oh my for a, god so a kid's looking for a pirate treasure right uh, <laughs> that's you, i think i just got kicked off this podcast oh my god <laughs> Well, we're doing the Goonies at some point now, and probably we're gonna in the have to. Yeah. It's so good. It's such a classic. Okay. Well. Oh my god. Oh my god. Goonies stick together, and you're no longer. You're not even a Goonie. Oh. Never, I never claimed to be. Oh. Okay. Oh my soul. Okay. I just you broke you can't your... see the podcast like us talking on the podcast, but you can feel my soul just being ripped out of my chest. I gotta say, it's a welcome sight. That's <laughs> exactly what I wanted to see today. Okay. Come out to the coast. We'll get together. Have a few laughs. Yeah. <laughs> now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. My favorite line in the movie might be John going like, you should have heard your brother squeal when I broke his neck. <laughs> like, <laughs> just for how like uncharacteristically vicious it was. All things being equal, though, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. Cool. I think that's it for us then. So we'll wrap her up there. Gotta go see Die Hard if you've never seen it before. And coming up next on the episode, really excited to announce that since we're getting to the end of the year, we're doing our best of of the podcast. So we're talking our favorite movies that we've watched this year, both the old movies that we've covered for the first time that we've seen either first or second viewing, or new movies that we've seen in the last year, first or second viewing. And there's quite a lot like i've seen a lot of movies this year and yeah. i'm excited to talk about some of them some of the new ones that we haven't really talked about on this podcast as well as uh highlighting some of the films that we have talked about on this and that really blew me away in my first watch yeah definitely i'm excited for that as well i gotta make my list yeah i'm still working on it as well it's 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 quite a process actually it's it's kind of fun making lists that's the accountant in you talking but yeah yeah <laughs> that's exactly i'll it, concede that point yeah i'm looking forward to having all three of us on the podcast together again yeah reunited, reunited so. and it feels so good yeah all right cool uh i think that is it for us so see you next time See you next time. Next time on VCR.